Hi, this is Trent England with Save Our States with another Six Questions podcast. Really excited to have Sean Spicer with us. Uh, probably needs no introduction, but I will say former White House Press Secretary, a really transformational figure at the Republican National Committee as far as, as changing the Republican message. Um, now out with a new book called Radical Nation. We're going to talk about that a little bit and, uh, and also the host of a great show on, on Newsmax. So uh, we'll probably talk about that a little bit as well. Sean, welcome. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So first question, you've been involved in politics for a long time since you were a teenager, uh, which is which is similar to me. I, I was excited to get my driver's license so I could go pounding candidate signs. Tell us about that. What what got you engaged in politics at such a young age? I, I mean, I look, I I think I got more really engaged for the first time in college. Um, I more than anything, I mean, I dipped around, if you will. Um, but part of it was I had a, like I like sort of an intellectual awakening. I went to college to be a Japanese language major. I found that I wasn't very good at it uh, and frankly didn't enjoy it. But I found there's sort of this intellectual banter when it came to politics. Um, and it was more about what I thought the role of government was and wasn't. And, um, and so I love this idea of sort of a battle of ideas. So if your candidate or idea was on the ballot, like you knew every November on the first Tuesday after the first Monday, whether or not you won or not. And like, so it, it was like, like a, a civic sporting event, right? You had a finite amount of time to, to get on the field and, and, and best the other team. And so I, I sort of love the idea of a war of ideas and a war of, uh, of candidates to you know, to see whose person was best and, uh, and to try to do what you could to, to make your campaign or your candidate better than the other. But I, and I still have that today. Um, I, I just, I love the thrill of, uh, of strategically trying to outthink the other side. Um, so maybe it's completely tactically um, to figure out, okay, my campaign has X amount of resources and there's these many voters and how do I win, whether it's a primary or a general election or it's an issue that you're trying to, to either promote or defeat. Just, I love the strategy behind it in the same way that I think, um, you know, a, a football player likes the game or a basketball player or, you know, to me, it's, it's, it's not, it's the strategy behind it, um, which is different than like a sport where like, it's just you. And, you know, like, if you think of like swimming, I mean, your goal is to be the fastest, right? And that's it. And it's, you're either fast or slow and you can do things to make your body better or, uh, or to improve your time. But in politics, it's, it's constantly thinking of how do you use the time and resources that you have to best your opponent? Yeah. Well, so you also have engaged in that war of ideas in a different way by writing the book, Radical Nation, and uh, definitely want you to share with our viewers what what prompted you to write the book? What tell us a little bit about Radical Nation? So it's here, it's out right now. It makes a great holiday gift, uh, and uh, and we always tell people so I don't forget. Like if you if you want to buy Radical Nation as a gift and you want it in um, to personalize to somebody, if you buy the book and send us the the sort of the receipt or the purchase from Amazon, um, what we'll do is we'll and you tell us who you want it made to, like, hey, you know, to, to a friend or whatever, we'll personalize a book plate and ship it off to you uh, free of charge. Uh, so we, we appreciate everyone who wants to do that as a gift. Uh, what, what prompted me to do that is a concern, frankly, for the country. Um, I, I, I believe that we are headed in, in toward a, a radical nation. And that's why I named the book the way it is. And it's funny because over the past four, maybe five weeks, 
um, more and more people, commentators, pundits, Republican members of Congress are using the word radical. Now, I don't think it's because of me, It's be but because, I mean, for the same reason I chose it for the book, I think that there's an agreement, generally speaking, at least on the right and definitely moving more towards the center, that a lot of these policies are radical. We're talking about doing things. I mean, New York City is on the precipice of allowing 808,000 people to vote that are not citizens of our country. And no one's batting an eye at this. And I just find it mind blowing. We're about to pass another trillion dollars of social spending to re-engineer the country that is financed on the backs of, of not just the next generation, but the generation after that, largely through the Chinese. And nobody has a problem with that. I just, what is happening in this country just worries me dramatically. And I argue in Radical Nation that the people and the policies that make up this administration are getting us there because, you know, fundamentally, I believe that we underestimated what Joe Biden wanted to do. He told us, and I write about this in the book, that he wanted to be the most progressive president ever. Just no one took him at his word. He, in the last several months, has talked about transforming the nation, transforming the structure and nature of the economy. All of those things, he's telling it to us. Um, and yet we look at all of these little things in isolation. And my point is that when you looked at them collectively, then I think we're headed towards a radical nation. So nobody has dealt with the media perhaps more than, than you have. Now you're in the media, uh, but you've been, you've been at this for, for a long time in the Trump administration before that at the RNC, Sean Spicer. Is the media changing and what should the conservative strategy be to engage with the media well? So I think what it, it has always been liberal, it is much more activist and it is much more open about how activist it is. And I, I, I actually have, have looked at journalism schools and, and if you go in, in their mission statement, most of them have this phrase where they talk about making the world a better place. And I would argue that that's not the job of a journalist. The journalist's job is to tell you the facts, tell you what's happening, tell you the story in an unbiased way and let the reader, the viewer make up their decision. That's not what, what most journalists believe their role is anymore. They believe it's to argue for a set of values and principles that they believe in. And they believe that they are much more activist than journalists. Um, so I think that it, the role has changed substantially and I don't think that they hide it anymore. They don't care that, that they're very transparent about the fact that they're activists. Um, so what can we do? Two things. Um, one is call it out where we see it because they act, like I, I think part of this is to make sure that people don't think that they're not activists and biased. They are. Um, and what they cover. And part of what I make the point in Radical Nation, I have two chapters in the press about this. There are, the, the biggest issue is what they don't cover. They overlook so much of what happens in this administration and don't call it out, don't acknowledge it. Um, and therefore that's probably the biggest issue. The second thing from a conservative is, is get active and get engaged. I did a podcast the other day that gets over 400,000 views a night. Um, when they post it, not just, I'm sorry, when they post it on YouTube, not just the, the podcast and the downloads that they get from like Apple or Spotify. And what that tells me is that there's a yearning. When I started my nightly show on Newsmax, it was not, uh, it was not the most watched thing at six o'clock. And now we're getting hundreds of thousands of people that tune in every night um, to, to watch Spicer and Company on Newsmax. And, and it's, you know, and that just, that's just the TV folks. We are um, lucky that we are available to stream for free, whether it's YouTube or newsmax.tv.com. You literally don't need a cable subscription. So we have this, this audience that keeps growing. 
And I would say that I think that that shows that there's a hunger and a yearning for alternative voices. Um, and so I think that you look around the spectrum um, and you see the growth. You look at, look at, go to Apple and look at the top podcasts, right? A good chunk of them, if not the top, are all right leaning. Um, I think there's a yearning for, for alternatives because they look at the ABCs, the Politicos, the New York Times, and they realize, okay, these guys are biased in their coverage. They don't cover a lot of the things that I think most Americans are talking about or caring about. And so therefore, people are going. But you can now go on Rumble or Getter or Parler um, and start your own, you know, like you guys. I mean, you got your own podcast, right? I mean, you get on there, you reach out, you have guests, you have conversations, then you promote it and you hope that it keeps growing every week. Um, I think that that's the new medium. But my point is, is that more than ever, there are opportunities to get involved and get your voices heard. And so if you're saying, well, I'm not, a, I don't want to necessarily do that, but you can then get engaged civically. You saw just south of here, what happened to Loudoun County, Virginia, where parents engaged in a way of pushing back against critical race theory and other things that their kids were being taught. And suddenly their activism, their engagement takes an issue, brings it to the forefront of the national dialogue and frankly became a massive issue here in the race for governor. So this is our Six Questions podcast. We're talking with Sean Spicer, former White House Press Secretary. Sean, here at Save Our States, our mission is to defend the Electoral College. That's, that's what we do 24-7. Obviously, that was a big issue in the 2016 election. Uh, tell us, you know, from your own perspective, why is it fair? Obviously, we believe this at Save Our States, but why is it fair for a candidate to win the election by winning the Electoral College without winning the most popular votes? Well, fun, one little fun fact for you. Uh, in 20, 2004, I served as an elector from Virginia. Ah, um, uh, I, I, share, I share your view. I believe strongly in electoral college. Um, there are several things. Number one, um, the system was set up for a way to ensure that every state had a role in it. And so that if you just made the election popular, number one, I, I think it would be we would be counting votes from the 2004 election still to this day. It's just impossible. You, we have over 10,000 voting precincts. So, I mean, A, there's, a, there's just a practicality from a country this big of how you would conduct an election like that. Um, I think if you can get over that, which I think, I mean, you could at least make an argument that logistically you can get over that. I, I don't buy it, but I think one could do that. Um, I think two is that it ensures that states, um, I mean, you think about it, California, with its 54 electoral votes, doesn't necessarily get the same attention as an Ohio, because you know, be, which which is great in a way because it it shows that you just can't be big and powerful. Because if you took this center away, you'd have people just campaigning in LA and Miami and and big urban areas and not paying attention to other places. Now that doesn't mean that those states don't get attention. The way a system works is that they still have to go and they earn it. And so, you know, you still see a candidate go through Texas and California, they get their due. Um, but I think that it ensures that, um, that there is a concern about issues that wouldn't otherwise exist. Because if you didn't have to worry about the Montanas and the South Dakotas and the Delawares and uh, where I grew up in Rhode Island, then it would be a completely different campaign and issue. So I, I like the way that it focuses our campaigns and our candidates on states and issues that wouldn't otherwise get it. And I also think it's just, it's the same way. It's sort of a nice blend of how we set up our legislative branch, right? So we had this trade-off with a Senate that was equal so that every state got 
two senators and that was it. And then a house that was by population. And there's sort of a, a little bit of a blend of that in the electoral college because you take your Senate count, right? So that's the evenness. So every state has two electoral votes and then you take your house delegation. Um, and so that ensures that, that big states like California get 54 votes and smaller states like Rhode Island get four or Delaware gets three or Montana currently gets three. It'll get four after the next census uh, reallocation reapportionment. But the point is, is that I think it ensures a fairness and, and an attention that, that otherwise wouldn't exist. But the thing that, that, that also is interesting is, you know, I, I love when people relitigate a last election and say, well, you lost the popular vote. That, that, okay, well, that's like saying that, you know, I, I was, I'm a Patriots fan, as I said, I grew up in Rhode Island. Last, you know, after last Monday night's game, everyone's saying, well, they didn't, they only threw what it was three passes. Well, who cares? There's no rule about how many passes you have to throw. There's no rule about how you have to get your points. There's no rule about, you know, how many field goals versus how many touchdowns. It's, you get the number of points you win. And so to conduct an election after the fact and say, well, you didn't get the most popular votes, well, that's great because the Republicans not going to campaign in California or, uh, you know, New York City because they're not going to win. So why do that? But you campaign in places that you need the electoral votes. I mean, Maine that splits its election electoral votes or Nebraska actually gets more attention in some ways. And you saw that, that there was a campaign for Maine 2 and Nebraska 2, both the congressional district that were seen more swingable um, that wouldn't otherwise get any attention. And so I, I, I'm a fan of it because of, of how it allocates uh, resources for the candidates and the campaigns. Yeah. Yeah, make, makes makes sense to us. The electoral college keeps uh, keeps this this balanced system of states uh, in in place and, and makes it work for everybody. Um, penultimate question here of our six questions, Sean. You've been in the the Navy Reserve, I understand, for uh, over over twenty years. Um, tell us about that. So serving your your country that way, uh, you know, outside of politics, um, what what motivated to you to do that? What what has that been like? So as I said a couple of times, I grew up in Rhode Island as the ocean state. Um, I grew up on the water. So I had appreciation for the Coast Guard and the Navy and, um, and keeping our, our waterways and, and um, free and um, safe. Um, and so I'd always had an appreciation for both of those two services. My great grandfather was a Medal of Honor recipient. He had served aboard the USS Marblehead, um, grew up in Newport, had taught at the War College. Um, so there's this sort of family history of the Navy and um, it, it had never worked out in my life. They always wanted something like in terms of the number of weeks that I had in the summer and what they wanted for a program. Um, and I finally stumbled across this program when I was in my late 20s and joined the Navy uh, at 29 years old uh, and was commissioned as a public affairs officer. Um, I, I just, I went to college. We didn't have fraternities. I'd been involved in politics where it was one party versus another. And I always wanted to feel like I'd serve something bigger than myself um, and, uh, and, and had a higher calling. And I think to me, serving in the military, there's, a, there's, you know, there's no politics. It's, you, you understand the mission at hand, you understand you know, that you're there with your other shipmates in the Navy. And frankly, as a, as a purple force with Army and Air Force, a lot of, I've done multiple joint tours. Um, there's just something cool about knowing that the person sitting to your right and your left have the same mission that you do and it's to defend uh, this country and preserve the freedom that we have, not just here, but throughout the world. So it's, I've always thought it's, it's you know, I've, I've, when I got in the Navy, there was, I was you, trying to figure out what you could offer. And I feel like, you know, 23 years later, I got more out of the Navy than it gave me. That's, that's great. Um, Sean, last question. Thank you so much for, for being a part of our six questions podcast here. 
Um, last question, same question we ask all of our guests, who is your favorite founding father and why? Um, I, I think um, the, the, I, I don't think that to me it's, it's, there's a, there's a sort of a, a fight. I mean, I think Washington wins it every day. Uh, he set some of the precedents that guided us forward. If it wasn't for him and what he did, whether it was serving two terms, whether it was resigning his military commission, I don't think that the others could have done their job in the way that they did. Um, Washington set so much of the tone, the precedent for how we would go forward without, I mean, remember we didn't have a constitutional amendment or, reg, or, or even a law about how many terms the president can serve, but he set that early on. So much of what he did set the tone for how presidents would govern and, and act going forward. Um, so I, I think the, the, the challenges that he took, the things that he did, the, the role that he laid out for the presidency um, was critical to how we would go forward. And so I, to me, I, I think that there's a lot of great things that so many of our founding fathers did, the risk that they took to their own lives, the, the ingenuity, the thought that they had, the foresight, but if it wasn't for how Washington conducted himself, um, I don't think we'd be where we are today. I'm Trent England for Save Our States. Sean Spicer, thank you so much for joining us on our Six Questions podcast. You bet, guys. Thanks for having me and uh, for all you do to preserve the Electoral College. Thank you. Make sure that you uh, go out and find Sean's book, Radical Nation, and watch him on, on Newsmax. Thanks for watching.